Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. That, of course, was Joe Biden taking square aim at Vladimir Putin in his State of the Union address. I'll be talking today with former CIA officer Douglas London about how the spy agency can support Ukrainian partisans. Gene? There was an expectation that cyber would play a big part in this conflict because of Russia's considerable capabilities in that realm. So far, that hasn't been the case, but the former head of the National Security Agency says, nonetheless, we are seeing a new paradigm. Because I really do believe that we're going to find that in the history of cyber and cyber warfare, this Russia-Ukrainian issue is going to prove to be a, a major watershed. That was Admiral Mike Rogers, former head of U.S. Cyber Command and director of the National Security Agency. We will hear much more from him in just a bit. That's a very lively interview, Gene, on the cyber aspects of the unfolding Ukraine crisis. Meanwhile, we're going to talk about the guerrilla war aspects with Douglas London, a 34-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's clandestine service. London was deeply involved in U.S. covert activities in the Middle East and South Asia, so he knows a lot about guerrilla movements. He's also the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. So I called him up to talk about the opportunities for supporting a Ukrainian resistance should, as expected, Russian forces overrun the country. Doug London, welcome to Spy Talk again. A friend of mine described the mood out at CIA headquarters in Langley as quite somber. Does that jibe with what you would expect? I wouldn't expect it to be somber as much as it is focused and very determined. When crises like these come about, which we're well conditioned and accustomed to experiencing, I think merely it rallies people a great extent, in fact, energizes them. So I think there's certainly uh, personal sentiment over the plight of the Ukrainians and for the world uh, as we watched events unfold. But I, I would question that it's a somber mood. Okay. Um, after Afghanistan, uh, after the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and so on and other crises, CIA set up a special working group. Do you expect, I know you've been out a few years, you're not privy to exactly what's going on there. Would you expect a Ukraine working group would have been set up by now? I would have imagined. I, I think a, a group of some sort would have been set up even before uh, Russian tanks crossed those lines of control. Uh, but certainly it's getting more resources aligned with it to enhance and, you know, its capacity to, to do the mission. Okay. 
you wrote an article in Foreign Affairs recently about uh, the prospects for a protracted guerrilla war against the Russians in Af- in uh, Ukraine. Let's get down to the nitty gritty spy stuff now. There have been comparisons to uh, uh, CIA uh, operations against the Soviet Red Army in Afghanistan back in the 1980s. It seems to me the equivalent here is more like the Nazi invasion of France. Um, for one, for starters, CIA doesn't need, or the U.S. does not need to be secretive about its backing for uh, Ukraine resistance, right? Well, you bring up a couple of interesting points. One, I I agree. I I believe support that the agency will provide will look much more like World War II, the Jedburgh programs in France and, and Norway, because there's not really going to be that safety for partisans to operate in the woods, in the hills, not with technology the way it is today. Of course, some will depend on how much of Ukraine is left if the Russians stop short of moving to the West, which they might need to to cut off those lines of supply. But if they leave Lviv in the Western part of Ukraine, there's certainly more area for partisans to operate in. But I think it'll look more like the cells that operated clandestinely during World War II, where people have day jobs and then come out at night or whatever to conduct their attacks or their bombings. Mm -hmm. In terms of what CIA is going to be able to do, I think it's going to be less guidance in terms of, you know, here's how you conduct this attack and here's how you conduct this strike. I I would expect it to be more in terms of providing intelligence, uh, liaising with these groups on the ground to receive their intelligence, and also to help them in terms of communications, support, and supply lines, I believe unlike Afghanistan, where, and again, where partisans and insurgents could operate in the hills and the mountains, this would be more of a cat and mouse hit and run insurgency, except for those operations that are cross-border. One would expect, and, and, and I know you've made this point, Jeff, depends on how our NATO allies feel about supporting such cross-border operations that don't invite other problems, political or militarily, that those sanctuaries there will provide um, places from which partisans can cross the border to conduct raids and the like. Right. We've seen Poland reneging on its uh, promise to uh, allow Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian p- pilots to retrieve uh, MiG-29s from Polish soil. Um, so the situation regarding uh, NATO member support for Ukrainian resistance is still cloudy. Now, going back to the World War II analogy, we had uh, British agents parachuting into occupied France and helping organize um, French partisans. Um, how do you see what's the equivalent here for Ukraine? Uh, uh, allied uh, U.S., British, and German, uh, and so forth, uh, agents uh, creeping across the border to liaise with Ukrainian partisans? I think the United States will be very circumspect about that, even though it's it's out in the open that we're supporting the resistance. We're currently supporting a, a recognized sovereign government. If Putin succeeds and topples Lazinsky by taking Kiev, assassinating him, what what have you, then legally it becomes a different situation. If there's no operating government in Ukraine, if in fact the Russians occupy the entire territory, then the United States would really need to maintain this in a covert manner, fig leaf as it might be, that it's going to be the most open secret that the United States, likely through the CIA, is providing continued supplies of weapons and materials and tells the support. It's different from allowing an American to be captured 
by the Russians in Ukraine, I believe that we would send our people in to areas that we were very confident were secure. We've done that before in Afghanistan. We did that in Iraq leading up to the war. And for years before the war, the CIA had a team that would go into northern Iraq and work with the Kurds on Iraqi territory because there was a, a sense of physical safety that we would send U.S. staff officers into areas that are held by the Russians behind enemy lines. We're not at war with Russia. We were at war with the Germans. So I think the circumstances are different. We've sent uh, CIA officers into Iran for years, also under uh, various cover mechanisms. Um, what kind of aid is most needed by Ukrainian partisans at this point that the CIA could and allied intelligence services could provide? Materials, so, you know, supply lines, guaranteeing supply to them, intelligence so that they could know what threats they're facing and help them in terms of targeting. The United States will be able to maintain technical coverage as well as maybe UNT operations in terms of the dispersal and deployment of Russian forces and where they might be vulnerable. So I believe material and in intelligence supplies, maybe some continued help with communications, uh, training in sanctuaries for organization is most likely what the CIA would provide. By materials, you're talking about Stinger missiles, etc. Weapons, uh, certainly weapons that are most potent, but again, weapons that will align with the mission. So as the Ukrainians transition to an insurgency, particularly if it's going to be one that is more reminiscent of World War II and the French resistance, really operating underground, if you would, not in the hills and, and conducting raids, then the weapons and supplies will have to align to the kinds of operations that they undertake. So rather than setting them um, you know, javelin anti-tank missiles, which would kind of be hard to disguise and, and to catch, it may be more support with fabricating explosives, explosives that could be made based with local materials, not necessarily um, C4 and, and military ordnance, but rather what they could put together as if they were a terrorist group that we've seen operating across the Middle East and South Asia. The kind of aid that Pakistan supplied to the Taliban against us in Afghanistan. There, there are indeed parallels. Uh, what the Pakistan gave the uh, Taliban the day most was just that. Reliable lines of supply, reliable and secure sanctuary to operate from which, you know, the United States was able to strike them for the most part. And you suspect that Russia would be quite cautious about attacking uh, behind the lines, bases uh, in Poland, Romania, et cetera, where the CIA might operate from. I wish I could have confidence in telling you what absolutes are now with Vladimir Putin. Um, obviously, any attack on a NATO member starts World War III. I mean, it's just black and white. And, you know, I, I don't see any lack of consensus among the NATO members. So would Putin push that and take that risk. You're talking about a leader who's already disavowed the old theory of mutual assured destruction. He has gone on record to say Russia now has reserved the right to deter a significant conventional attack by relying on nuclear weapons, perhaps theater, but still nuclear weapons. And where does that spiral lead us to? Mm -hmm. You know, I want to get back to the uh, nitty gritty of uh, part of supporting the partisans. But it seems uh, one can predict that there might be some severe recriminations if we continue to allow, quote unquote, the Russians to bombard key 
Ukraine cities, massive civilian casualties. Uh, the question, it seems to me, will be raised, who lost Kiev? Perhaps, and, and certainly there's always time for uh, 2020 hindsight, and there's always an opportunity for finger-waving and, and blaming. The Ukrainians, to my understanding, have resisted far beyond the expectations of U.S. And, and allied intelligence services, and I would think certainly the Russians themselves. Um, that, as the Russians switch tactics, as they appear to be doing, to lay siege to these cities and start taking much more direct and deliberate and indiscriminate bombing of those cities, which is part of their methodology that we've seen certainly in, in Syria and with their, their mercenaries in Libya. Uh, I, I, I question the ability of the Ukrainians to maintain an organized military resistance for the long term. So I, I, I don't know what the recriminations would be or, or with the exception of having provided more military supplies in advance so that they would have those caches of supplies in the cities or crossing the, the Rubicon and actually directly challenging the Russians, which has the various escalation possibilities. I, I wonder what else could have been done, but there's always time for blame, isn't there? Sure, always. Um, it seems to me that crossing the Rubicon for CIA would be an attempt to light fires inside Russia uh, and its allies in the stands and so on, and even Belarus to, um, to help support uh, anti-war resistance groups and so on. And in, in fact, it seems to me that the financial sanctions on the Russian economy, the strangling of the central bank and so on, seem to be aimed at, at regime change. Do you, do you get the same impression? I, I certainly think that's where Putin is most vulnerable, and that's where his greatest concern is. And I can't imagine, but there are those operations and plans on the shelf. And it's a question of how far do we depress the accelerator? Because that's really his vulnerable point. And, and I believe really the reason he's taken what to many of us seem like a reckless move in, in launching his operation against Ukraine probably belies his belief in his vulnerability at home, uh, and particularly in the satellite states, if you wish to call them that, such as Belarus and Kazakhstan and Chechnya. You know, you, Ukraine becomes a thriving pluralistic society, and the Russians as a people generally have a fairly good relationship with Ukrainians. They think well of Ukrainians. So if they go, well, look what's going over there, and Putin continues to you know, increase his own stranglehold over human rights and the kleptocracy there, that, you know, the common Russian, their, their, their yearly uh, income is around $10,000 a year U.S. and look at the, the oligarchs. So I think those operations have to be on the shelf, have to be considered. And then it's the question of, well, what do we trigger? Do we trigger what we seek, which is greater pressure on Putin from within a grassroots democracy, a grassroots movement that he fears most, or are we triggering World War III? Yeah, you got to watch what you wish for, too. I mean, the downfall of Putin, and we're getting way ahead of the game here, but the downfall of Putin does not necessarily lead to a liberal democratic society in Russia. There are plenty of uh, powerful intelligence chiefs and military chiefs and oligarchs ready to step in and pick up the kleptocracy and keep it going. They're all deeply invested in that. Very much so. But I think you look at the landscape and there's such ample opportunity to support mischief in Belarus. It wasn't that long ago that hundreds of thousands of people are on the street. 
There's so many uh, people throughout Kazakhstan, Chechnya, Russia itself, who, if not themselves sympathetic, are, are actually citizens of East European countries and others that carry Russian nationality documents that live there, reside there, and can be a source of how to launch, foster, enable an opposition, or in fact, um, kinetic attacks within Russian territory or those of its closest allies. We could also might expect to see uh, an uptick on Russian defections, uh, as you probably know, uh, after the Soviets laid the hammer on Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68, people were lining up to defect to CIA. Uh, a former Paris station chief for CIA told me in reminiscing about that period, he said, uh, you know, they were turning away uh, younger people, idealistic students and so on, who wanted to work for CIA because they didn't want to get them killed. Uh, do you hear anything about uh, movement on the uh, defector front? Well, I wouldn't be hearing anything about it, and I wouldn't be sharing if I did, but I would have to think now is a very good time to be a CIA case officer, because for exactly the reasons you said, given the conditions different what we're seeing openly, publicly, there's got to be people in the intel, military, security services who, if they're not voluntarily volunteering, are certainly approachable now as they haven't been before. Mm -hmm. We reaped some rewards along that line when the Soviets went into Afghanistan. There were a lot of there was a lot of uh, disaffection uh, at that time, and people came over to us in the 1980s. So, do you suspect uh, going back to the present situation in Ukraine with the uh, now notorious 40 mile long uh, Russian caravan approaching Kiev? Do you suspect that? Uh, CIA and allied intelligence services are hard at work trying to disable that column? I, I think the Ukrainians would be relying on sabotage operations as opposed to, you know, sending their organized military across. Um, their Air Force doesn't want to overextend its own security and air defense and make themselves vulnerable to Russian S-400 series systems and, and the like. But it just makes for an excellent target, all stretched out like that for sabotage and ambush operations, which, you know, being static is not a healthy thing for a military in a, in a hostile environment. Well, we'll have to leave it at that. The situation is fast moving. We don't know what's going to happen even in the next few hours, much less days and weeks. And I'm sure we'll be back talking to you. Thanks very much, Doug London. Thanks for having me on the program, Jeff. That was 34-year CIA veteran Douglas London, author of The Recruiter, Spying in the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Jean? Our next guest is going to talk some about how any insurgency will be different because it will be a cyber insurgency. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Spy Talk. Remember, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and follow us on Twitter. Jeff's at Spy Talker. I'm at Jean Meserve. We'll be back in just a moment. The conflict in Ukraine is still unfolding and much can change, but one surprise at this juncture is that Russia hasn't launched a more significant cyber campaign. I spoke about this with Admiral Mike Rogers, former head of both U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency. First of all, I would say, look, there's more activity going on in cyber in the Ukraine and the Russian areas right now than, are, than is being broadly 
identified or discussed, if you will. I think that's largely a reflection of number one, I think Putin wanted to try to keep prior to where we are today, as he's thinking about what he's going to do. Um, I think he had a couple of thoughts in mind. Number one, he wanted to try to keep this confined to the Ukraine, if, if you will. I thought he didn't want to provide a broad justification to external parties about, hey, look what's happening to us in cyber. You're, you're pulling us into this. Number two, I, I think there's a bit of overconfidence and miscalculation here. I think he was he felt he was in a position of such, such strength. Hey, I can achieve my objectives without you know, a significant, very visible piece of cyber. So I suspect in the coming weeks, you're going to see more visible cyber, much a much greater use of disinformation directed not only in Ukraine, but quite frankly, more broadly against the West and the nations that are aligned against them with respect to the cyber, to the sanctions regime. So you said there are things going on that haven't been publicized. Tell me. So first of all, um, one of the things that's interesting about this conflict, because I really do believe that we're going to find that in the history of cyber and cyber warfare, this Russia-Ukrainian issue is going to prove to be a, a major watershed. So for the first time, to me, you have seen both of the major parties, Russia and the Ukraine, publicly acknowledge that they are creating patriotic hackers or turning to non-government you know, capacity to extend their warfighting capabilities and both the Ukrainians and the Russians. Secondly, you have seen independent actors, anonymous being the most visible, uh, decide, hey, we don't like what we're seeing and we're gonna use cyber as a tool to intervene and to send a message to the parties, in this case, anonymous using hacking as a vehicle to cause pain to the Russians to signal anonymous's belief that what they're doing is illegal and wrong. So you've got a much broader range of parties that's over and above what governments are doing here. Is that a little scary to have these independent actors in the game? Can't they send things spiraling out of control? Right. Well, I will say one of the things, you know, we, we need to be mindful of here is does this, does some of the things we're seeing lead to escalation or miscalculation? What do you um, think? A very possible. Because one of the, the challenges, boy, I, you know, when I was in government and we would think about the offensive applications of cyber, among our discussions always was we need to be very precise here. We need to be very specific here. And in many ways, we want, we want to target and communicate exactly about what we're doing, not just in cyber, but more broadly in our information dynamic. So the target or the adversary understands what is happening and why. We didn't want this to be misinterpreted and we didn't want to get it out of control. One of the challenges when you start to turn to surrogates a lot, you lose a lot of that control. And suddenly surrogates think, hey, look, if the objective is to inflict as much pain as I can on the other party, well, the gloves are off and I can look at a much broader range of options or actions, particularly than a government might. Where, you know, government's always concerned, most governments are very much concerned about escalation and unintended consequence. And independent groups tend not to think about that very much in their calculus and their decision making. But you indicated in your first answer that um, there were some cyber actions that had been taken yeah. we didn't know about. Can you be specific? So you are seeing, and, and it's true, uh, both offensive and defense. Let me talk about the offensive side first. You are seeing um, actors in the Ukraine. I'll, I'll highlight the Ukraine piece first, and I'll talk a little about the Russian side. On the Ukraine side, you are seeing actors use cyber to attempt to target Russian military capabilities cut off their communications, as well as potentially impede their ability to actually operate. I'll be interested to see how that works. Does it work or does it not work over we time? We don't know yet. 
Yeah, I'd be curious to see how does this play out? Does it actually work? You are seeing Ukrainian efforts into Russia itself, defacing of websites, attempting to lock down Russian Ministry of Defense and some of their associated capabilities as they're trying to push more forces into the Ukraine, into the territory, into the, to the state. What's also interesting to me is, uh, and this will be really worth just really getting into in the aftermath of all of this, when we get the time to actually talk to people and access things, the Ukrainians are doing some really impressive defensive things as well. The, the Russians have not had quite as much success, I think, in terms of taking down Ukrainian networks, blocking dissemination paths. I don't think the Russians have had quite the level of success in their so cyber you, efforts. So you do think the Russians are trying to do this. They're yes. just not succeeding. They're, they're not succeeding. And in, I, I think trying to be objective here, they, they are perhaps not as focused on cyber as I thought they might be. It doesn't mean they're not doing it. It's, I'm just so, a little bit surprised it's not deeper and more broader. Do you think that the Ukrainians um, had prepared for this, or is this because they brought in these this IT army to help protect them, or is it because the United States and NATO are helping out here? Now, it's a combination of all of that. Look, if you look, at, let's start with NATO, and then we'll work our way back. If you look at NATO and the United States, we have been providing cyber defensive expertise. I mean, in my previous life, in the aftermath of the invasion of of Crimea by the Russians. You know, we sent a cyber command, we spent, we sent defensive teams into the Ukraine to try to help them assess their situation, assess their systems, assess their security levels, training. We try to help with training, et cetera. NATO has been doing that for some period of time now. And in fact, in as we were building up into this Russian invasion, you heard both NATO and the US talk about how cyber support was going to be an element of NATO and the US's support of the Ukraine, if you will. What's interesting to me is the Ukraine both has always had both a high focus as well as a good set of capabilities with respect to cyber defense and cyber in general. And as this crisis unfolded, they built on that level of investment, that level of expertise. They brought in some of their own private sector. This is, um, this is before this patriotic hacker element. They brought in and um, had very close relationships with cybersecurity elements in the private sector within the Ukraine about, hey, how can you help us? Hey, could you uh, training as we're building, you know, security frameworks. And then um, as they got into this crisis, you know, they then called a, the Ukrainian government and said, hey, we're actually going to create a formal organization. Another thing, it's not directly related to your question, but as you look to the future. So not only have the Russians, I think, been surprised by the Ukrainian response, I would argue both physically, kinetically, their ability to withstand this armed invasion, as well as um, the level of cyber activity, both defensive and offensive, if you will, that the Ukrainians have generated. As the Russians take more and more territory within the Ukraine, um, as we start to potentially get into an insurgency scenario, another dynamic, I think, in the Ukraine, another reason why I believe this will be a real watershed event in cyber, an insurgency within the Ukraine will look not just like a traditional kinetic kind of focus, improvised explosives, IEDs, you know, attacks against installations and isolated uh, Russian military activity. Look for the emergence of a cyber resurgence, of a cyber 
insurgency as well. I think that's really going to be interesting. We have never seen anything like that before. But I, because if you look at the insurgencies today, there hasn't really been much. There, there certainly was an informational dynamic, but there hasn't been so much of a cyber dynamic. I expect that to be very different in this. Situation. What do you What do you think this cyber insurgency could look like? So, can you disable um, elements of Russian infrastructure or infrastructure that the Russians are controlling? If the Russians, for example, take over the television system within the Ukraine as part of their efforts, could you take that down? Could you insert pro-Ukrainian messages in it? Could you, uh, f- you know, degrade it in some way? So there's a visible indicator, you know, you fuzz up. You, there's lots of techniques you can use, but show the average citizen, hey, look, I, there's something going on here. We're having an impact. Um, you would also see cyber, I think, use, could you shut down some parts of infrastructure that the Russians are using? You know, if they're using rail, for example, to move more forces around within the Ukraine, could you shut that down? Could you remotely access power distribution to areas where Russians' concentrations are? Could you use cyber at a tactical level to penetrate Russian information systems, for example? Could you attempt to manipulate Russian military data? Could you attempt to, you know, for example, use ransomware activity directed against the Russians, except you're not really interested in the generation of revenue, you're interested in locking down access to their data or the functionality of the systems. I think you could potentially see all of that unfold in the coming weeks and months. That's why I said, I really think that this will prove to be a significant watershed event in the history of cyber and cyber warfare. Something else that appears to have changed this time around is the role of industry. long piece of the New York Times about Microsoft and how it has been active uh, in both um, implementing intelligence shared by the U.S. government, but also having the information flow the other way from the corporation to right. government. So, yeah, you see, I was just thinking to myself this morning, look at the response to the 2014 Russian invasion of Ukrainian sovereign territory, in this case, Crimea. We saw a series of sanctions imposed in 2014 in the aftermath of that event, just as we're seeing now in 2022. And yet, what was the corporate or private sector response to that event? You, you didn't see much in terms of significant, I'm not going to say there wasn't any, but you didn't see broad global corporate action as a result of that. You didn't see corporate entities deciding, you know, I want to sever my relationships with the Russians. You know, I want to curtail business. You know, I want to provide the Ukrainian government more capacity, more capability, more information, more knowledge. It's eight years later, um, because that was February 2014, uh, when the Russians went into Crimea. And look at how different the private sector reaction has been in, you know, late February of 2022. We're going to cut off our market activity. We are going to cut off the sale of our, you know, our product in Russia. We are going to provide the Ukrainians insight, support, information, connectivity. Hey, your internet is being disabled. I'm going to sell you, I'm going to, I am going to send to you Earthlink terminal so you can do satellite access. You're just seeing a whole different level within the cyber arena. Uh, I think you raise a very valid point. Another one that I think that makes this so different. Do you expect things to escalate? Yes, I expect you're going to see more 
aggressive cyber activity. Uh, and it's going to go beyond the Ukraine and the Russian areas. You're going to see this largely because of the Russians. I think you're going to start to see this play out in the United States and in those nations, and by extension, the private sector within those areas that are within nations that are aligned against the Russians with this sanction uh, imposition, if you will, this set of sanctions that globally have been put in place. So if the Russians do that, President Biden has said, we will respond. Are we in the midst of a cyber war? I mean, it, 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 we'll have to see how this plays out. The, the, the reality is it's another reason why I think this conflict becomes really a watershed event. Because I think truly for the first time, we could really be in a cyber war here. I think at the moment, both parties do not want this to escalate out of control. Um, but it will be interesting to see, does the risk calculation of the parties start to change based on how things are progressing? So if you're the Russians, for example, and things are not going as well as you would like, either in terms of the progress you're making on the ground or the fact that you're having much more economic pain, you're experiencing much more economic pain than you thought, or the fact that you know this really does have a negative domestic impact, all this activity in Russia itself. And hey, the population is starting to get, you know, the Russian population is starting to get really concerned and starting to put po political pressure, if you will, on the leadership, as difficult as that is within the, the Russian system. D does that lead the Russians, for example, Putin's government to decide, oh boy, we really got to escalate here. We, 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 we really have to inflict more pain. Well, as you indicate, Putin's not going to go gently into that good night. He's going to fight back and he's going to fight back ferociously. And as you mentioned, likely with cyber attacks. Are we ready? So look, part of this is if, if the metric of success is the Russians can't penetrate any system, then I would say, guys, that's not the reality of the world we're living in. They're already What's in war. Right. What's important to me is, do we have the level of cyber resilience that we need? Do we do demonstrate we? in the face, let me finish, in the face of this increased activity that we can continue to operate? So to date, the cyber structure has actually proven much more resilient than the physical world. If you look what happens, major storms, hurricanes, earthquake, earthquakes, armed conflicts, it takes weeks, months, years to restore infrastructure. To date, we have been able, even in the face of cyber activity to date, We've shown the ability to restore functionality in hours, days, and in the most extreme cases, weeks. So there's a track record of stronger resiliency in the cyber arena than I think that we generally tend to think about. The question then becomes, well, if, they, if, if the, the Russians decide, yeah, but we really want to more aggressively pursue destruction. We want to more aggressively, not denial, which has kind of been the focus to date, we want to go beyond denying, you know, access for some limited period of time. To we actually want to destroy. We actually want to degrade, cause damage. Um, that's a little different kettle of fish. I still remain confident in our resilience, but we should be realistic. We are going to feel, in the face of a significant cyber onslaught or significant increase in cyber activity, we are likely to feel some measure of pain for you know hours, days. I don't think you can deny that. What, what you want to forestall is, hey, you can't cause me a level of pain that sustains itself for weeks and months. Let me ask you, if I might, about the disinformation campaign. Um, 
Russia clearly has been pretty effective internally, internally. Uh, in promoting its its party line. Do you think that that the social media companies have been doing enough to counter the Russian narrative? So again, it's interesting. Look how they have reacted versus the, the 2014 invasion. They, the majority of them are talking about, you know, we are not going to automatically host Russian content. We are not going to automatically apply, comply with, you know, Russian direction in terms of Russian imposed controls or restrictions on social media activity. Um, that's a significant difference to me. And I'm glad to see that companies are realizing, look, you have a responsibility. There are those who would use your platforms to harm others. Now, that has always been the case. Now it's just becoming even more visible because it's an element in an armed conflict in which thousands of people you know, are, are dying or being injured. And so the pressure to do something, I think, for many companies, both from a moral or ethical perspective, but also, quite frankly, because I think there's an expectation from a political perspective, as well as the general citizens of the world going, what are you doing you know, hosting or allowing the spread of these lies, these distortions? What lessons have we already learned? Um, so number one, the, the fact that, look, cyber is such a foundational element of any conflict or crisis. It isn't theory anymore, guys. <laughs> it's just real, it's tangible. So taking the time up front becomes even more important. You're always, you're always behind the power curve if you're just reacting. So the importance of preparation day to day, I think has been highlighted here. And that's not a surprise, but it's a reinforcement in some ways. I would also argue that cyber is a, a set of capabilities that are, that are growing and expanding within these conflicts and confrontations. More parties are getting involved, more capability. We've already talked about all that. We've got to account for that in the future. We've got to ask, for ourselves, ask ourselves, how do we anticipate that? How do we make sure we understand it? And quite frankly, how do we make sure that it doesn't become something escalatory or something that gets really out of hand and takes us in a direction that none of the primary participants want? I think there are also lessons about when we think about security, both national security and economic security, Cyber is a core element about that. You, you just can't separate cyber from, well, I'm, you know, I'm focused on national security in the defense of, in this case, the Ukraine. Pick any nation. But I'll treat cyber as something different or separate. I'm going, guys, that, that doesn't work. It's such a core element now of what national security is, of what economic security is. The fact that, look, the private sector is playing such a huge role here. We've talked about the actions and the choices that our companies are making. We've talked about the actions and choices that private individuals are making. And that's over and above all the things that governments are doing in cyber. Boy, the list of players here just continues to grow and gets ever more complicated. And so governments need to be thinking about, so what are the relationships I need to have in the future? What are the discussions I need to have now about these kinds of things for future conflicts? And I think also, you know, one of my takeaways always remains as important as technology is, in the end, it is men and women that really make the difference. And I see great men and women in governments attempting to help their Ukrainian counterparts, attempting to help raise more knowledge and insight within our own government and with our friends and allies. I see boy on the ground in the Ukraine, dedicated men, you know, Ukrainian men and women who are willing to put their lives on the line for their nation state because they believe in it. It's easy to, to talk about that. It is amazing to see it when you just see everyday men and women, you know, 
people with families, with children, and they're going, you know, look, as, as painful it is to me, as it is to me to potentially endanger myself and those I love, this is what I think the right thing is to do, and I've got to get involved. I just think that is amazing. The Ukrainian, Ukrainian society is so determined, has such courage. I think that really surprised the, the Russians, and it's, I think, really impressed the broader world. And we're seeing, you want to see a society that is resilient? Look what's going on in Ukraine right now. We've got to be resilient. At the moment, this is a little bit of an emotional exercise for most Americans. And I'm not trying to downplay that or minimize that. We see something that we believe is wrong and we express our support for Ukraine and its people. And we execute a series of you know, political and economic actions to convey that support in a very visible, very tangible way. But for the majority of Americans right now, it's, but this really doesn't impact my day-to-day life. This, this really has, causes me no pain, doesn't impede me in any way. I don't have to make any sacrifice. If that potentially starts to change at least a little, you know, hey, um, we lost some measure of functionality in the financial structure, or boy, we had power issues today for some period of time, or I couldn't access, you know, my banking website, for example, or, hey, I, there's longer than normal lines at the gas station. You know, we need to remember that, look, there could be a, a personal price that, that we're going to be paying. Hopefully it won't be significant, but we need to be ready for that. And we need to remember that's what we have signed up for here. Given our political our realities point. and the reflex to um, exploit weaknesses in your political opponents. Do you think we will have the kind of resilience we need? Well, certainly the Russians are hoping that given our track record, that in fact, we would have this domestic discord would go to such a level that it would then have political impact. You know, it would either slow down or impede our nation's ability to focus on this, to actually take additional action. And in a worst case scenario, I think that what the Russians would hope for is could, could they generate enough political pressure that, in fact, the U.S. leadership felt it had to back off? You know, hey, well, maybe we need to pull back some of these sanctions. That's why I say the cyber and the disinformation piece are going to be really significant in terms of, hey, what would the U.S. structure be? I like to believe that we're a nation that is always, despite our political differences, we know what is right and what is wrong. And when we see something that is so incredibly wrong, like what the Russians are doing in the Ukraine, we are willing to take a measure of pain to support a democratic nation that is trying to force to withstand this incredible evil. That was Admiral Mike Rogers. He was head of U.S. Cyber Command and also headed up the National Security Agency. That was fascinating, Gene. You know, this whole role of patriotic hackers and rogue hackers is really kind of unnerving in a way. It could spiral out of control, as Admiral Rogers said. And I also was fascinated by the, the idea of, of each side raising its drawbridges. It sounds almost like a medieval uh, sacking of a city, except it's done on the cyberspace. So it's, uh, as he said, a watershed event. We're in new territory here as the crisis dangerously escalates. And, well, heaven help us. So true. Thanks a lot for joining us again for Spy Talk. I'm Gene Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for sticking with us. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. 
If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.